We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, you are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas and big stories to the mainland from the small island state of Tasmania. The show is proudly recorded and supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about what they're doing. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Ollie Dove and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita. I also pay my respects and acknowledge to the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we'll be taking a dive into the world of zoology, working with seabirds and mammals with our expert guest, Dr. Cheryl Hamilton. So, Ollie, tell me a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about because you're very passionate about this area and why you wanted to talk to Cheryl. Will do, Neve. Thanks so much for coming in today, Cheryl. It's great to have you with us. And you've had a pretty extensive career working with all sorts of wildlife populations, including seabirds and mammals, which is sort of similar to my line. I do a bit with seabirds myself um, and you've been in monitoring and consulting roles, really important jobs that help to sort of maintain and keep track of those important populations. But first, going back to the very beginning, how and why did you first enter the world of STEM? Um, I guess I entered STEM in a similar way to lots of other people by taking those subjects at school and those being subjects that I did pretty well at. Um, I came from a very medical family, so quite a science-focused family anyway. Uh, and as I progressed through school and then decided to do a range of science subjects at uni, um, for my undergrad I increasingly was fascinated by zoology, so focused more and more on zoology and marine biology subjects in my undergrad. Um, so yeah, that's where it kind of went, I guess. Oh, what were the next steps after undergrad? Uh, so I finished my undergrad at the University of Auckland and I was pretty keen to go down a pathway of really applied science. I was interested in conservation, conservation management, not really an academic pathway. Um, there was a course at University of Otago called a Diploma in Wildlife Management and it was fairly new in that course. Um, and anyway, I got into that and it was just a game changer for me at um, was a small group, there was 11 in the course, um, fantastic uh, mentors and lecturers who, who took that course, um, really intensive, lots of field work, really applied management um, topics and units. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that really gelled it for me that that's what I was really interested in and loved being in Dunedin, loved um, doing that course. Um, and that then led into doing a master's in sooty shearwater ecology in New Zealand. Um, so carrying on from that course, really. What were you looking into with the sooty shearwaters? Uh, so that was the start of a long-term research project that went for at least 20 years. Um, so I was kind of the first student on that project. Um, the whole uh, philosophy and aim was a co-management approach, so at... Um, but my focus was really starting to get some baseline information with sooty shearwaters on mainly mainland islands 
and ma- sorry, mainland colonies and um, nearshore islands around the South Island. Um, so yeah, lots of just establishing um, breeding biology studies, starting a big banding program. Um, and after I finished my master's, I then went on uh, as a research assistant assistant on that uh, monitoring program, uh, large research project, um, and established monitoring of sooty shearwaters on the snares in the New Zealand subantarctic and on a small island off Stewart Island. And so that was the core to that long-term program that, um, as I said, went for 20 years. How important are long-term data sets when it comes to evaluating populations? Um, hugely important because they're long, these are long-lived species, they are really slow breeding, so a sort of shearwater only lays, as you know, <laughs> one egg a year in a, in a burrow. They're really hard to study because you can't see them. You have to have techniques to be able to um, look at where they nest underground. Um, very hard to monitor, and that's, I guess, at that point, um, this is... 30 years ago, there wasn't a lot of work being done on burrowing petrels um, because of that difficulty in being able to monitor them. But because they're slow breeding, uh, they only produce one one egg, therefore one young per year at the best, um, long-lived, and so any impact on them has huge impact um, on the ability mm-hmm. for populations to bounce back. But also it means that you have to study them for a long time to be able to find out what's happening with populations. There's a lot of inter-annual variation that kind of can muddy the waters. So if you just look at a couple of years, it's pretty meaningless because you're not really getting an idea of what's happening with that population over a length of time. So long-term monitoring, and it's often fairly basic stuff that has to happen year after year Mm -hmm. for a long time before you start getting useful information. With something like that, Cheryl, would that be similar to how we monitor human health, but tracking the exposures that change health or change behavior is really hard because you've got to look at this really, really long timeline. So do you look at the behaviors of the birds and burrowing birds yeah, as well as like the types of environmental factors that could be contributing over time? Is that quite important because it could be cumulative or does it kind of vary depending on what opportunities there are for data collection? Um, yeah, it does. So yeah, again, le- there's so many influences and you have to it takes a long time to accumulate that data. It takes a long time to identify what direction you might be needing to go in. Um, so, yeah, it, it probably is really similar to monitoring human health and certainly needing those long-term data sets to, to be able to um, factor out different variables and, and focus in on the, on the key issues. And are there any key benefits to choosing a species like that where there is long-term exposure or would it not be easier to go like with a shorter lifespan species where you might see acute effects really quickly from something that could be a chronic detriment or uh, bad thing? Well, I guess it depends on your questions, but something like sooty shearwaters, and we have the equivalent here in Tasmania with short-tail shearwaters, which um, Ollie is obviously really familiar with because she studies them. Um, and, you know, they have such different influences from uh, species that have shorter lifespans and more productive and potentially are living more locally. So uh, sooty shearwaters and short-tail shearwaters have a global distribution, so they migrate, they have influences from across that migratory pathway. They feed in the northern hemisphere, so um, the Bering Sea, Gulf of Alaska, have all sorts of influences from those winter feeding grounds that um, are currently, those areas are not doing very well because of climate change influences. So... Yeah, you're looking at a completely different 
species, completely different um, set of factors that are impacting them and influencing them over their lifespan. So two different um, kettles of fish. So Apples and oranges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the birds that you work with the cities um they're burrowing birds as yeah. well as the short-tailed and there's a big push over the years to sort of make our methods of monitoring them as least invasive as possible could you tell us a bit about developments in this area or ways that you might use to try and monitor these populations but by having as minimal disturbance to them yeah so there's as certainly um new innovations coming along all the time and um even banding studies, I think there's a real move away from, from mass banding of birds and I think there's a lot that we've learnt over the years with banding studies and there's a lot that you can't answer without individually marking birds, which what is what a band does. So mean? I was just going to say that. So a band is where you put a metal ring around the leg of a bird, um, in the case of a shearwater, and that is with the bird for life. So it means that when they come back to their nest or their burrow, um, you can clock in both the parents or the pair so and you know exactly who is who um you know if you're banding the chicks from that pair you know who that chick is and what happens with that chick through their lifespan you can get lots of information on survival so by clocking in um, and recording who's coming back to an area every year you've got information like the proportion of of young people, young people, young birds that are coming <laughs> back to a colony, um, breeding birds, whether you've got the same um, birds coming back every year or whether you're starting to see changes in the numbers and proportions that are coming back that might indicate there's something going on. Um, so, yeah, so there, as I said, you know, there's been lots of studies over the year where banding has been the real focus and I still think there's definitely has its place. But with um and a lot of what was happening with banding studies was gathering information on fisheries impacts. So being able to um pick up dead birds from fishing that had been killed on fishing boats and identifying them from their bands and therefore where they had come from. Whereas a lot of that work can now be done with um with putting gear on birds, so GPS loggers or satellite transmitters to find out where those birds are going rather than kind of backtracking from picking up a bird that has a band and identifying where it was banded we can now put gear on the bird so put these these loggers or satellite transmitters and be able to identify where they're foraging around the world. So it's rather a data quality improvement or innovation rather than you don't want to use a band on a bird. Yeah. It's more so like the methods have become more sophisticated and can give you better quality real-time almost data rather than having to, like, I can just picture people trying to work back all the steps every time they see a bird with a specific band number. And if anybody's ever tried to link data, it's not fun. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and and there's still information gets gathered in that way, and it's still really important information, and it's... um, It's very labour-intensive, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So there's new, like, innovations. How does it differ to, like, GPS track a bird compared to, like, putting a band on it, like, for the bird? Uh, So it is... A heavier, so again, there's been lots of work, and and that's been something that's refined over the years. Is getting smaller and smaller packages, um, and te- the technology has been refined to get smaller packages to put on birds because you're wa- not wanting to put a, a heavy, heavy package on a bird that's going to really greatly impact um, their ability to fly, for example. Um, so that's definitely something that's changed over the years. Is is um, the decreasing weight of of gear that you can put on birds. Um, 
and that's definitely a consideration and and the size of species that you can work on um yeah, I was just going to say, would that change like the age at which you can put something on a bird as well? Like if the, you've got something quite small and light, you can probably put yeah. it on a younger bird and track more of their life course. And uh, well, with sooty shield, you know that they adult size at the time of fledging, so so, oh, the, weight, okay, yeah. so the weight's not really that's a not difference a between the fledging that, bird yeah. and a and an adult bird from that perspective. Um, it's more the species, so you know the smaller species, you're, you're limited by by what you can do. A larger species, you can a heavier heavier bird you can you can put more gear on and then the gear attachment method is is um again something that's been developed and refined over the years as well and can influence how long you can can keep a gear on a bird because um because they molt every year so that the plumage changes so they'll they'll lose their feathers so you can only attach things you can you only have the the time window if you're attaching gear to feathers for example for how long those feathers are going to stay on the bird there's a lot of factors to consider. Yeah. Um, so, But just getting back to your question, Ollie, the other, I guess, change with burrow nesting birds is, is trying to find methods to look at them underground, as you know. Um, and, you know, there's the basic method of putting your hand down a burrow and feeling or feeling whether you can feel a, an adult or a chick down a burrow. And that's still used for lots of monitoring. It's very simple. It's You don't require equipment. Um, a lot of people can do it. So that's still a method that's used a lot for burrow nesting seabirds. Um, then we've gone to using a camera that can be taken down a burrow and there's various um, different versions of that. Um, new technology is looking at, at, at drones and, and the um, heat that's given off from a burrow to be able to identify whether you've got an occupier or or not, and that's really interesting work that's that's been done in, in recent times and is ongoing. So, so yeah, there's kind of always new ideas and, and new developments to try and um, and improve and reduce the impact on the birds as well. That's incredibly fascinating, Cheryl. Thanks so much for explaining that. Stick with us, listeners, as we return in part two to hear about Cheryl's return to tertiary education. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are taking a peek at monitoring wildlife. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Dr. Cheryl Hamilton. Now, Cheryl, after years of gaining practical fieldwork uh, experience out in the actual world of birds, you then went on to study a PhD. So what was the drive to coming back to gain the formal qualification? Well, I guess I'd, I'd already, always kind of been interested in doing a PhD, and but then life took me in different directions, and I had an amazing pathway with the work that I got involved with. So during the 90s, working in New Zealand, uh, I was getting lots of um, contract work doing, um, again, on, on long-term research and monitoring programs of seabirds, so mainly focused on albatross species in New Zealand, so Antarctic, and um, then first I married a Tasmanian, so that's how I ended up in Tasmania. And uh, again, was kind of working here. Um, I then I was working for the state government for three years and then stopped really to have a family. Um, for about 10 years, once my kids were old enough, I then did environment consulting for a, a number of years because that fitted in with having small children at home. I could work from home and work contracts around um, 
the family life, and increasing with the environment consulting. Um, my colleague and I were doing a lot of work in the fisheries bycatch space and, and looking at fisheries bycatch mitigation, so how to how to reduce bycatch of various species and initially focused on seabirds, so looking at different techniques to reduce seabird bycatch. Um, but with the contracts we were getting um, with our consultancy, um, with both the New Zealand and Australian government, that was also um, moving over to, do, to marine mammal bycatch work as well. So um, we we're increasingly doing more in both spaces uh, and it just you know evolved to the point in time where uh, opportunity came up to really do a PhD to kind of consolidate that work um, so my PhD was looking at uh, bycatch mitigation so the real technical um, solutions that you can can do within a fishery so mainly gear or modifications or actually devices that you can attach to fishing gear um, so I looked at ways that had been um, developed and, and implemented to reduce marine ma- mammal bycatch, so the bycatch of usually s- small cetaceans and seals and sea lions. That sounds really interesting. Can I just confirm, so bycatch is like if I'm out for tuna, and but I catch other things other than tuna, that's not useful to me. Yes. And are they always killed if they're caught at the same time or is that like a really silly question? <laughs> no, not at all. And there's different definitions of what bycatch is. So the species that are being caught that aren't the ones that you're targeting. Mm-hmm. So, and they can be other fish species, they can be seabirds, they can be cetaceans or marine mammals. They're not always killed. So, you know, there's obviously a range of fisheries and a range of fishing techniques and and gear that's used to 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 fish the range of species. Um, but yeah, it's it's not always fatal. But often that post-release mortality isn't well known. So you might mm. again, depending on the species, they might get caught the injuries or impact on them might not be apparent. So the post-release mortality is often an unknown factor as well. That's a good point. So you might release it, but you've no idea whether or not they survive that yeah, process. Exactly. So what do you mean by a mitigation technique? Does that mean like changing the way things are caught or the way things are released or just like coming up with a new method of doing something so that you might reduce just the amount of things that you don't want that you're catching? Yeah, all of the above. So mitigation is really about reducing that impact and so for a fishery it might be about changing the time of year or the time of day that you're fishing mm. or having areas that are closed off to fisheries so you might have a, a, a really important breeding seabird island and the birds feed really close to that island so so having a reserve around that island can can make a difference in terms of of, um, of mitigating the impact of that fishery if you're removing the fishery from the area that that birds are foraging um, and then the mitigation techniques, so I guess in terms of my PhD and the work we do, we talk about technical mitigation being the actual physical technical devices or gear modifications that can be employed in a fishery to to reduce the impact. So um, I guess the work I was most focused on was with trawl fisheries and so with, with that and the device I was most focused on was a seal or a sea lion exclusion device. It's a modification to a, a, a trawl net where um, there's a hole that's um, a scape hole put in the in this case in the top of the net um, and a grid that's put in the, within the trawl net that stops seals or sea lions going to the far very far end of the trawl net, which is called the cod end, where the, the caught fish are, co- are collected. Um, and so it's a device that allows, that stops seals 
get into the far end of the net and directs them to a top open escape hole. So in that case, it's a technical device that's um, actually built into the trawl net. How successful are those seal exclusion devices? They have been shown to be really successful, but there's a variety of designs and they're very fishery specific. So it's important that um, that when a device is, imp- is, is employed in a fishery that the testing is done on that particular fishery to see if it's working. The work we were doing with New Zealand sea lions um, showed that the sea lion exclusion devices were really effective in reducing bycatch, but that was a device where it had an upward-facing grid within the, the trawl net that directed sea lions to the top of the trawl net and then allowed them to escape out. There's always one or two individuals that don't make it, so it's not 100% bomb-proof Every, every seal is going to be saved by this device, but um, certainly the research showed that it was it had a big impact on reducing m- the mortality of sea lions in those fisheries. Does something like a technical modification, like the nets that you've just described, um, changing, is there any evidence about that being more successful than, let's say, changing the catchment area of a fishery? Because one's like, a you can still do what you're doing, just use this new piece of equipment. And the other's like, oh, actually, we need you to change your behaviour so that you're, and you're becoming more restricted. So do you know, is, is that um, a factor? Pretty much for fisheries, it usually takes a whole suite of, of, of different methods to, to reduce, to have a really good impact on reducing the mortality of your bycatch species. And so with New Zealand sea lions, for example, it has taken a range of those methods. So both uh, reserves around their breeding islands so that um, fishing is not allowed really close to where they breed. But then sometimes the fishery has to fish in a particular area because that's where their target species are. So you do need that range of both excluding fisheries from key hotspot areas that have a really strong impact on the on the species that you're trying to protect, but also the technical mitigation. So it's often often a whole whole range of things that are, are required. Thanks so much, Cheryl. It sounds like you've gained a wealth of knowledge over the course of your career. Listeners, stick with us for part three and we'll be talking more about what can be done to bridge this gap and improve uh, practices in fisheries so that we're reducing the number of species that are impacted. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about wildlife monitoring. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Dr. Cheryl Hamilton. This might be quite a large question to ask, but do fisheries, are they keen to mitigate bycatch and reduce it and help with these practices, or does it take governmental or legal pressure on them for them to actually implement them? Yeah, that is a big question, Um, and I'd say both. Um, So most fishers like the environment they're working in, so they don't want to have an impact for a start. But also catching species they don't want means that they're not catching the species they do want. And often the bycatch species has an impact on the target species or or can have an impact on their gear or whatever. So by and large, I would say that fisheries are really keen to solve bycatch um, issues. Um, It's also important for... um, the marketing of their of their species as, of the species they catch as well, but you know across the board you still need government regulation. You still need you know this this is the way that it has to be done. You that specify that the the best methods for reducing bycatch. It might require um, 
government input to yeah define defining the the really important things that need to be done and and using that government regulation to make sure it's implemented properly. So Cheryl, you can sort of research and come up with the best practices for mitigating bycatch and reducing it, but is there much of a gap between the ideal practices and what is practical and can be implemented in reality? Um, there could be, um, but that's why it's super important that the whole process is done as a collaborative process with all the key people, and so you can't really de- be developing mitigation solutions without doing that with industry, and often the best solutions around the world that have really worked have come from industries, and that's the case with um, the sea line exclusion device I was talking about before in New Zealand that was very strongly developed by the New Zealand fishing industry. So I think you have to have all key players on board, otherwise it's not going to work. And so cases around the world where um, there might be a great idea come up, but it's it's been developed and worked um, through how to, uh, completely independent of industry, is never going to work because it has to be something, A, that industry takes on board, but also that works operationally. So they're the ones that know best what's going to work in their fishery and is not going to impact their operations in a unsafe or um, unviable way. Still a philosophical question, but maybe less fuzzy. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but what about people driving change from their hip pocket where consumers expect to buy things, particularly groceries and food, um, at quite low prices? Like how much does, it's great that governments can implement sustainability practices and policies, but how much could market changing and price expectations also drive change? You know, if all wild caught fish became a gourmet product, but then farmed fish wasn't considered that, would that also help to drive public perception changes because it's what they feel on a day-to-day basis? And is there any discussion like on a global scale or in fishery management about the role of cost because they must be under immense pressure to do th- things sustainably but to keep price affordable. Yeah, not really my area of, of expertise or, no- or knowledge but, um, you know, I guess the same thing's happening with clothing, isn't it? That, you know, it's so easy to buy the cheap clothing but it's not ethically produced and so it is about making a change in terms of what the expectation is in terms of what we can purchase mm. and what's gone into the process of developing that product and the same is with fish um that as you say it might be that we have to pay more for a sustainable product than something that's been obtained less sustainably but cheaper and so I think that is education change it's a mind shift change it's a cultural change um like with anything that we that we purchase That's a really great analogy. Thanks so much, Cheryl. And thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you content. Hope you enjoyed the show. As always, we're celebrating Tasmanian science. If you did enjoy it, you can get our episodes on demand wherever you get your podcast from. So do look up That's What I Call Science wherever you like to stream your content. For now, thank you and goodbye. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Ollie Dove, and our expert guest, Dr. Cheryl Hamilton. This programme was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.